If you have your Bibles, turn out, turn with me to page 942. That's Romans, the sixth chapter, for those of you that aren't using a pew Bible. And um, let me just take a second just to welcome you. Um, it's so good to see you again this week. I feel like we have folks joining us uh, that are joining us for maybe the first or the second time since, uh, since March. And so we welcome you. And for those of you that are either still, um, at, still quarantined at home or whether you are on vacation this morning or wherever you may be, maybe you're just not feeling well that are joining us on the live stream, I welcome you as well. And so we are going to look at Romans, the sixth chapter. Got a ton of work we wanna do this morning and we'll try to zip through it as fast as we can, but let's, we're gonna read the entirety of Romans six. And I know that's gonna take us a little bit of time, but it is such glorious truths and we need to hear them and hear what the Apostle Paul is doing with the resurrection of Christ in our lives. So Romans, the sixth chapter. The Apostle Paul writes and he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, but do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under, the law, under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you will obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. What glorious truths we get to read. What glorious truths we get to proclaim. What glorious truths we get to believe this morning, Jesus. That we have been resurrected from the dead just as you have been resurrection, resurrected from the dead. That in your death, you're dying for the penalty of our sin and in, our res- and in your resurrection, you are promising and you are giving to us newness of life that we can live as slaves unto you and obey you and obedience that comes from the heart. And it is to those ends that I pray this morning. Jesus, as we think about these things, as we preach and proclaim these things, Jesus, may you be glorified and be lifted up in our hearts. And Jesus, with your power, what is real power, real spiritual power, would you work among us? Will you draw sinners to yourself? May sinners be saved this morning and may saints be sanctified this morning, Jesus, as we think about your life the new life that you now have and that you've proclaimed to us and that you impart to us. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, let's, uh, we're gonna set the, the, the event, as Pastor Derek said, we wanna first set the event of Jesus's resurrection in the Storyline series. And I get to do that, I'm going to do that. Uh, and in fact, I'm gonna share with you an illustration that I found all the way back in uh, December 4th of 2019. I was I, on Twitter, there was some, there's some, occasionally something good on Twitter. And I saw an image that a person had taken and posted from a commentary in the book of Leviticus. And when I saw that, I was like, this, I'm gonna preach this when I preach resurrection. So I've been holding on to this to talk about and to share with you all the way since December. There's been times where I'm gonna share it now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them the, 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 I'm not, but I haven't. And so now I get to, and I feel like a kid at Christmas getting to share this with you. I hope it's helpful. But as we thought about the storyline of the Bible, we've talked about it in couple different ways. We talked about it in, in terms of the kingdom of God. And we said throughout the Bible, there is this kingdom motif that's kind of, that's being presented and being shown and it's a pattern. And that, that motif, we talked about it, it's this, it's God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. That's why we sing about Jesus being a king because we're under his rule and we're also experiencing his blessing. And we as the church, we're God's people and someday we'll finally be in God's place, which is heaven. But we've talked about that pattern over and over and over again. And what I wanna do this morning is I wanna really focus in on God's place. I mean, we'll tie it all together, but I really wanna focus in on for just a second on God's place. Talked about this in the past. We said, especially in the Old Testament, that God is putting Israel's theology in its geography. That God is putting Israel's, both their sin and their salvation on the map in places. And so I wanna talk about two places that are, that are actually metaphors for an actual places or actually spiritual experiences. They're not real places. You can't really go there. You can't book a trip there, but they're metaphors for two places. The psalmist picked these up, even though these places are throughout the, the Old Testament, but the psalmist talk about them a lot. The first one, and we're gonna put this up on the, up on the screen to show you. The first one is a place called Zion. 
Zion. And Zion isn't just Israel, the country. It's not just Jerusalem, the city. But Zion is more of like, you would say, like some people talk about places. You say it's more of a state of mind, right? Than it is a place. Somebody says this about, about Monterey, my, my parents' hometown where they grew up. They say, Monterey isn't a place, it's a state of mind. That's not Monterey, Kentucky, not Monterey, California. But those of you that have been to Monterey or know people from Monterey, you're shaking your head because you understand that. In the same way, Zion is not just a place, but it's a, it's a spiritual state, if you will. It's symbolized by the, the mountain of the Lord, the holy hill of God. Like Psalmist, the Psalmist writes in Psalm 24, three and four, he says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And he says, he who, has, who, who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's never lifted up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So that's the holy hill. He's talking about Zion there. Who shall ascend and go to Zion? Who can dwell in Zion? The holy place of God. And what he's saying here is only those who have never sinned. And so Zion, it, it, it symbolizes um, a right relationship with God. It symbolizes almost like sinlessness. It symbolizes a fullness of life. It is God's people in God's place, under God's blessing, enjoying God's uh, reign and rule in that place. That's what Zion is. It's where all of that will finally take place is Zion. And the opposite of Zion, though, as the psalmist speaks about, is a place called Sheol. Now, let me say this in the front. This isn't heaven and hell. Again, these are, symbol, these are symbolizing spiritual states is what it's talking about. Zion isn't heaven and Sheol isn't hell, but certainly the, the, the manifestation of them will be such. But when the Bible talks about Sheol, it's usually not talking about hell. That's usually a place called Hades. But what is in Sheol is the opposite of Zion. It's a place of darkness and dust, a place of death. The psalmist writes about it, and I could pick maybe a dozen, maybe even more places where we could talk about it. But like in Psalm 88, the psalmist writes, and he says, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose from among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who, rem who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depth of a pit in the regions of dark and of deep and your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. That is Sheol. That's a picture of Sheol. That if Zion is full of light and full of life in which it is, then, then Sheol is a place that is full of darkness and place that is full of death. It's a place of banishment. In one place it's called the enemy's bunker. That's how we can translate it but God still reigns in Sheol. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now the path from Zion to Sheol is known as the exile. And you may say like, why would anybody go from Zion, light and life to darkness and death and Sheol? Well, because we sin. That's the storyline of the Bible. We sin and in our sinning, God banishes us from Zion. We, we banish ourselves by sin, by action. We're banished from, from Zion to Sheol. And the picture of that is called that movement, that, that progression, that downward progression, that downward path is called exile. But the way out of Sheol, back upward to Zion, it is called an exodus. 
So we're exiled down into Sheol, but within we are exodus out of, out of Sheol to Zion. Now we'll leave this up on the screen for just a second, but let's talk about some patterns that we've seen throughout the storyline of the Bible. We've seen it in Adam and Eve. They basically start off in Zion. They start off in a place called Eden where they are in communion with God and there's communion with unity with one another. But then what happens is they sin and then as they sin, they get, they get banished. They, the, the communion with God is broken and they're banished out and they go out, uh, out they're exiled out into Sheol, which would be an area in Genesis uh, chapter three known as East of Eden. They're living out beyond, outside of Eden and Eden is shut up. And so they're exiled out. We see that. We see it with the nation of Israel. I mean, their story actually where we pick up in the book of Exodus, it actually starts in Sheol. It starts in, the, in Egypt, another place of Sheol, a place of Egypt. And there they're under slavery, the slavery of a cruel taskmaster by the name of Pharaoh. And then God comes in the book of Exodus. It's called the book of Exodus because it's covering the Exodus. And they're being Exodus out of, out of Sheol. They're being Exodus out of Egypt where they will be taken to the, the promised land, which is a picture of Zion. On the way, they get a foretaste of Zion as Moses takes them to the, to the holy hill of God, Mount Sinai. And Moses ascends up on the mountain and God descends down and they meet there and there's thunder and lightning and God gives them the law, but then God also gives them the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. It's God's presence that's among them. So they're on their way to Zion. You know, we sing that song, beautiful, beautiful Zion. They're marching to Zion. They're going on the way to the promised land. They go into, as part of the Exodus, they go into the wilderness where they're tested and they're tempted and they fail. And then guess what happens? They're basically, the wilderness then becomes Sheol again. There's a new generation that God raises up. He puts punishment on that generation and then he raises up a new uh, generation. It's kind of Israel 2.0. And that is that that generation is then promised Zion again. They're going to the promised land. We call that the conquest. And the conquest is Exodus out of the wilderness, Exodus heading to Zion, to the to the city of God, to establish the place of God. So they're on their way. And as they when they get there, they establish the city and God's temple is built and God's presence is in their midst. And then guess what though? They sin against him continuously. They raise up idols and God will judge them and he will do what? He will exile them again. And now they're exiled into Babylon. So we've covered Joshua. We've covered first and second Kings, first and second Samuel. We're into the prophets now and they're exiled again as they're banished out of out of, out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, the city is even destroyed. Judah's exiled to Babylon and Babylon is Sheol. And then there's another Israel in Israel 3.0. It's never as strong as, as Israel 2.0, but nevertheless, there's a new Israel. And that Israel is the Israel that is called Exodus out of, out of Babylon, out of their exile, their they're, they're Exodus back into repopulating and rebuilding of, Jude, of Jerusalem. This is the books of Nehemiah and the books of Ezra. And they're returning to Zion. Now, Jerusalem will just be a shell of what it was before the exile, but nevertheless, you have this return, this exodus, this coming out of the, out of the places of exile, out of, out of Sheol, if you will. And then that brings us to Jesus. And Jesus will submit himself to this same pattern again. He teaches us that, and then we will see it happening in his, in his life and in his death. Jesus would teach it. 
his submission to this pattern whenever he said things like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about that, that death there. He's not just talking about, about physical death. He's talking about more than that. It's being buried. It's being covered up. It's going into a place of darkness. He's talking about shield there. And then it will be resurrected again. Jesus says, tear down this temple. And in three days, I will build it up again. He's talking about the pattern of life, death, and resurrection. He's talking about that very pattern as we've seen in the Old Testament. All of these teachings are pointing to Jesus' doing of this, his accomplishing this. In the cross, Jesus dies. And in Jesus' death, he goes into Sheol. He's under the curse of God, under the punishment of God, under the wrath of God for our sins. Now listen, I'm not saying, again, Sheol isn't hell. I'm not saying that Jesus went to hell. We don't believe that. We don't think the Bible teaches that. But what I am saying is Jesus experienced death just as all humans do. And his body was buried and his soul departed to the place of the dead into Sheol, the belly of the earth. Ephesians 4, this parenthetical statement that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 9, it says, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That in Jesus's resurrection, he is being exodused out of Sheol. He's being exodused out of death. He's rising again. Jesus defeats death and the grave. He conquers Sheol. He kicks the door of Sheol's gates in from the inside and he ascends to Zion, the very manifest presence of the Father where Jesus is giving a crown, he's given a seat, which is a throne. He's given a, a position and a name, a name that is above every name. And his position is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So Jesus is submitting to this pattern. Now, what about us as the church? We've seen it all throughout. And then we look at ourselves and go, okay, now where do I see, where do I see me as a New Testament believer? Where is the church in this pattern? Well, that's what Paul is preaching and teaching on that you and I, that you and I are united to Christ and Jesus's pattern is, is our pattern. That's where we are. That you and I, this is what Paul is teaching. You and I have been mystically and spiritually united to Christ by our faith in the finished work of Christ and God unites us. He counts us. He reckons us. He, uh, he, he reckons us to Christ and to Christ's um, perfection to us. He reckons us to Christ and Christ to us and Christ's perfect journey, both Christ's exile and Christ's exodus is then counted to us. And what he says is your baptism, it images that, Romans chapter six. Your baptism images this, Romans 6, three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into Jesus's death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too. You see how the language is talking about Christ and us because we're spiritually united to him. It's both and, it's happening. He's doing it on our behalf. He's including us in this, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
That was last week's sermon. Jesus is dying for the penalty of our sins. We've been united in a death like his. He, he shall certainly, I'm sorry, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In your baptism, and this is why we baptize, we, we baptize on per confession, we baptize by emission, by immersion. Those are the ways that we baptize because it symbolizes plunging under, plunging down into the grave, into shield, and being resurrected again. In your baptism, it symbolizes your death with Christ and you are raised with Christ. You are exiled symbolically, plunged into shield, and you're resurrected into newness of life. And let's take it one step further. What is, okay, Paul, that's good and that's deep and I get that and it's theological and that's great and that's mystical on some levels because it's hard for us to imagine, hard for us to see and there's a lot happening here, but let's take it one step further in application. Notice what is Paul talking about? What's the application for this in Romans chapter six? What's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about sin and sanctification. That's what he's talking about. What Paul is saying, you, you would look at that and go, okay, so what? What does that mean for me? Well, the newness of life is that you receive new life in that you're, the, the bondage of sin has been broken in your life. But the truth is, is this, that no one, we didn't begin in Zion. We begin in exile. We begin in Sheol. We begin with sin. That every man's journey post-Adam begins in the place of exile. Nobody starts off with a perfection but we've been united with Jesus. See, we can talk about sin in a couple different ways. We talk about sin as we talk about it with the penalty of sin. And we talked about that um, even last week. That sin carries with it a penalty. The penalty of sin, as Paul says, the penalty of sin is death. And what Sheol represents as Sheol is death. It's exile. Ultimately, it is hell. The sinners cannot be in a right relationship and right fellowship with God. But here in Romans chapter six, Paul's not talking about the penalty of sin. He's covered that in Romans chapter three, four, and five. We covered that last week. That's crucifixion. Resurrection, on the other hand, he's talking about something else in regards to sin. Not just the penalty of sin. Sin doesn't just carry with it a penalty and punishment whenever we, whenever we transgress against it, but also the Bible speaks about sin as a power. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter six. He's saying that there is a power at work in sin and because we are in sin, that power is at work in us, a bondage to sin. And here's the glorious truth that Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter six. I gotta be honest, I see at least seven sermons in Romans chapter six, so someday we'll get there. I'm not gonna cover it all, but here, if I could sum it up, here's what Paul is teaching. That because we have been united to Jesus's victorious resurrection, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Because we have been gloriously united spiritually, mystically united by faith in Christ. We've been united to this pattern of Jesus's life and his death and now his resurrection because of that, that you and I, that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. The shackles of sin has been broken. A couple of things we'll say about this as Paul points out in Romans chapter six, the old self, the flesh has been put to death. 
Your old man, the old you, the one that used to enjoy sin and used to sin and sin often, that old man has been put to death. He has died on the cross with Christ. Romans 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Your old man is dead. The old man, the old you, the old sinner in you is dead, brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Good news. Y'all don't look like it's good news because you're a bunch of sinners, right? We'll get there, hold that. Our experiences don't, don't change the truths of Scripture. Just because you still sin, that doesn't change the truth of Scripture. Like again, what, what justifies us is the perfect work of Christ and your faith in that perfect work of Christ. It's not whether your, your performance doesn't justify you. How good you do, a bad Monday doesn't discredit you or disqualify you from, from enjoying and joining in on the union with Christ. That's why the, the picture isn't, well, now you need to be exiled and you need to go and to Sheol and you need to be exodus out and you need to go to Zion. There are people that teach that and that is not true. That's not what Romans 6 teaches us. What Romans 6 teaches us is you couldn't do it. So by God's free gift of grace, he sent his son, his son, his son came and did it. Now believe in him. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't go try to live the best life you can live on your own. And we hope by God's grace, you get there. That's not the gospel. There's no good news in that. The gospel is Jesus has accomplished it. Now go and enjoy his accomplishments. Woo. And you go like, wait a minute, you can't preach it. No, that's exactly what the jokers are saying in Romans 6. That's why, that's why Paul is, is preaching and teaching what he is here. They're accusing Paul of saying, Paul, you don't care about the law. You're saying, throw away the law. We can live however we want to live. They're saying to Paul, Paul, you can't preach that. You can't teach that. It's not based upon your merit or your effort. Because if you do that, then all people are going to want to do is they're going to want to sin and sin and sin and sin. And Romans chapter 6, Paul saying, hold everything. Hold on. You don't know what happened when you believed in Jesus. You don't know what Jesus has accomplished. You don't know that the power that Jesus brings as he resurrects dead souls to himself. You have no idea about that power. And that's what he's teaching here. So it's good news that we get to rejoice in. It's beautiful truths that we are alive with God and to God. That's a beautiful truth. Look at verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. He didn't just leave you in the tomb. He just doesn't leave you in the grave. I mean, some of you I've been tempted. I heard Dee in her class, she gave this illustration away. Some of you I've been tempted to leave down when I baptize you. Haven't we, Pastor Frank? We'd be like, hey, let's leave this joker in there a little longer, right? Like my son, Grayson, I'm gonna leave him down here until he starts bubbling. Okay, we'll bring him up, you know? Bring him up now. He doesn't just leave us under, he resurrects us. And the same thing Paul is saying here, you're not just dead with Christ, but if you believe that you died with Christ, the old man is dead, guess what? You're getting a new man. You're now gonna live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he's never gonna die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And he's saying, now you can do that too. So now you also, verse eight, must consider yourselves 
This is the way I want you to think about yourself. Don't think in yourself in terms of, I'm just an old nasty sinner. You are, that's the truth. But guess what? You don't just leave it there. You don't just stop there who's been saved by grace. He says, consider yourself. Think about yourself. Meditate on this truth when you think about yourself. I love it what Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. What a beautiful thought. So now you must consider yourself dead to sin. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to my past. I'm dead to those old things. I'm dead to those old ways, but I'm alive. I'm more alive than I've ever been. I'm alive to God in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. Notice also Paul says that we have been liberated from the bondage of sin. Romans chapter six, we could look at 15 through 23. We'll start in 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient. And your obedience is an obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now I say unto you what Jesus said to the woman who was caught in a sinful act. Now go and sin no more. Right? Wouldn't it be glorious? Like just now go. Here's the truth, Romans chapter six. It's undisputable truths. You can try to argue it, but God's gonna win. You know, it's the truth. This is the reality. This is who you are. It's spiritually true and your sin doesn't make it untrue. Now, guess what? Go and sin no more. Wouldn't it be great if we could just do that and go and sin no more? But the reality is, is that we do sin, don't we? We do find ourselves transgressing against the law, breaking the law, thinking thoughts that we shouldn't think, mumbling words we shouldn't say, thought, doing actions, creating idols of the heart, we do still find ourselves doing that thing. And some of you would say, hey, this isn't good news. This is terrible news because I'm wondering if I'm even a Christian. Am I even saved? I think about my life and I think, good grief, how? And I, I've had those thoughts. I have those thoughts. I think about my life. I think, golly, am I, am I even converted? Am I even regenerate? Am I even saved? We have those thoughts. But here we have to know that Paul isn't teaching perfectionism here. He isn't saying that the Christian life is a life of perfection. He's not. And if you're asking the question, if what Romans 6, if that is true, if that is true of me, then why do I still sin? And let me show you why. You still sin because you are here and not here. See the difference? We'll go back to the other one, please, Brian. You're here, not here. You're on your way to Zion, but you're not in Zion yet. It is what theologians say. It is the, it's the already not yet tension that's found all throughout the Bible. There's a, there's a truth of the reality of it. Even when we think about your own perfection, when we think about Romans 6, there is the reality. He's declaring these things to be. The bondage of sin is broken. You're alive to God. The old man is dead. There is a reality in that. And yet the, the fullness of that, that reality hasn't come true in your life yet. But it will. 
You are on the pilgrim's path. You just haven't arrived to the pilgrim's destination yet. Oh, you will be sinless, those of you on the path. Those of you that have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be made perfect when you die. And the first real breath that you breathe is the one where you see Jesus face to face. In that moment, you will be glorified to be like him and just seeing him as he is. You'll be forever changed. And in that state, you will be perfect. You will be sinless. You'll be taken from the presence of sin. And that's the reality. John Piper, and we can always quote Dr. Piper, but Johnny Pipe says this. He says, the Christian life is an already and not yet experience of this sinless position and identity in union with Christ. What happened to Christ Jesus historically and finally and unchangeably and to us in him is applied to us. But the application, he's saying, doesn't just come all at once in its fullness, but some now completely and some now progressively and all fully in the age to come. We are already fully forgiven and acquitted and declared righteous and justified in our union with Christ by faith alone. And we are already delivered from the slavery of sin that is from the power of sin as the defining direction of our lives. We And we are already able by faith to grow more and more triumphant over sin in our daily life. And we'll get back there in just a second. But we are not yet perfected in our daily earthly experience. We must fight the fight of faith and become inexperienced by faith what we are perfectly in our union with Christ. Paul put it like this in Philippians, the third chapter, the 12th verse, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay a hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by, by Christ Jesus. Do you see the already, not yet tension in that text? Not that I have already obtained it or that I have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ has laid hold of Paul for perfection and everlasting blessing that secures Paul. But now Paul confirm, confers, I'm sorry, confirms that great work of God in Christ by laying hold of that which he was laid hold of by Christ. There is an ongoing battle with sin, the sin in the Christian life. That is why the commands in verses 11, 12, and 13 say this, so you also must consider yourselves dead and alive to God in Christ. There's a command there. Consider it. Let not, let not, he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. There's a command there for you to do. There's action that you are participating in. You're not letting sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness that Paul is teaching that even though we have died to sin and therefore cannot live in sin, we cannot continue in sin, we can sin, we can commit sins, and we do. 
And so what we must do is we must lay hold of the reality of what has happened to us in our union with Christ. And we must confirm that in our daily lives. So what we declare, we preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out. We remind ourselves, we stir up ourselves with the beautiful truths of the declaration of what Christ has achieved for us. And then we live by our best efforts, leaning into the work of the Spirit. We lean into the, the work of the Spirit in our lives to bring that into conformity. That's what Paul says in Romans, the, um, the eighth chapter. When he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit's work you're putting to death. You're accomplishing all of those commands in verses 11, 12, and 13, and we could have gone on. It's you living out the reality of what Christ has, has achieved and accomplished in your life. But let me take it one step further even. And hopefully this will be helpful. Why do we sin? We sin because, because sin still has some power it holds in us, don't we? There's still a, a, a power. We feel that, a power that is at work. It's weakened by the work of Christ. It's weakened by the Spirit. But there's still, there's still a power at work in us, drawing us, making us, you know, at work in us that, that makes us sin. And what is that power? Then what is that power? And that power of sin is, it's, it's the power of broken promises. See, Satan, he throws the, he throws the hook, right? But there's always bait on the hook. He, he lures us in temptation. And, and, you know, you don't take a, you don't take a, 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 a buck call out into the woods with you to call in turkey. Like it probably won't work. I guess like that's probably the reality. When you go turkey hunting, that's when you see deer. When you go deer hunting, that's when you see turkey, right? That's what those of you that hunt in the room, you understand that, right? Like you don't just take a brass hook and throw it at a bass and hope he catches it. Like, you know, Michael Scott can catch fish like that, but the rest of us humans in here who can't, we can't do that, right? Like that doesn't work for us. You gotta put some bait on there and you throw it at it. My dad had an uncle, it was my great uncle, and he loved to fish. If he was breathing, he was, he was either fishing or wanting to fish. That's just the way he was. He had a saying, he'd say, big bait equals big fish. That's what he always said. So he'd put the, the biggest, nastiest wad of worms on a hook or chicken livers or whatever else he was fishing with. He'd put that on there and throw it out and sink it in the bottom and just hope and hope and hope to catch a big fish. And in the same way Satan works, there's, a, there's bait on the hook that he throws at us. There's a call that lures us in. And that's where the power is. But what is that? What is that bait on the hook? The bait on that hook that he gives us is the promise, the broken promises that sin will bring. And that broken promise is usually the promise of pleasure. Why do you and I sin? Rarely do we sin out of ignorance. But we sin because we think that whatever that is, that sin is, that somehow, someway, it's going to bring pleasure to us. We get to feeling blue. We get to feeling down. The weather's stinky. Well, this happened, this happened. We're stressed and what do we do? We grab the credit card and we go running off 
to the mall and we make purchases that we can't afford. New guns and new boots. One of them is a $500 expense. The other one's probably $39.99 expense. But nevertheless, that's what we do. We do some retail therapy. And what do we think? That somehow we can't afford it. We got this credit card. What do we think? We think somehow that swiping and the new purchase and all of that is somehow going to bring us pleasure. There's going to be some pleasure, some satisfaction, some delight. We do it because it, it feels good. When that person on the other end of the phone or that, cashier, that poor cashier at Walmart or wherever the place may be, whenever you give her a piece of your mind, when you've had all you can stand, Popeye, and you can't stand no more, and you go ballistic on them, and you lose your temper on that person, and you walk away and you feel vindicated, don't you? You think that somehow by, by, by exploding on that person and losing your temper on that person, somehow that's going to bring you some sort of justification, some sort of pleasure, some sort of vindication by saying that, by doing that. We can go on and on, and we can talk about even more. It's the lie that the pleasure that porn will bring. It's the lie that the pleasure that an adulterous affair, that adultery will bring. It's a lie that the drug will deliver. The next drunk, the next high, the next thing, the thing that we steal, and we can just go on and on and on and on. And what Paul is saying here is you are dead to sin. And look at this. He's not just saying... He's not just saying you're dead to those things, although we are. But he's saying you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And this is how God works, is what God does is God gives and God delivers and God promises. God, none of God's promises are ever broken promises. See, every sin, we could look at the broken promise, and sooner or later, you will experience the brokenness of that promise that you thought sin would bring. But what God does is God gives us real promises and God delivers superior pleasures. And that's the key. You want to get stronger in your sanctification and your fight against the sin? It's here in understanding this, that what sin promises is, is, is pleasure that is broken and it will really never bring pleasure. It's, it's, like, it's like the thirsty man being thirsty and me, instead of giving you water to drink, I give you a, 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 a cup full of sand. Now drink that but it looks like water. I don't know, that illustration just got really convoluted. But what God promises and what God gives is genuine water. Luan, Psalm 16, 11, imagine this. My family, we've been kind of reading and studying in Psalm 16, 11. And what I mean by reading and studying it means is Luann wrote Psalm 16, 1 on our chalkboard. And Luann and I have talked about, we need to talk about Psalm 16 to our kids, but it's just been a source of, of life for us in our own, in our lives and in our marriages. And Psalm 16, 11 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That's Zion. But look, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. That God holds in his right hand pleasures. Pleasure on top of pleasure, on top of pleasure, on top of pleasures, pleasures forevermore. That when you understand that, when you understand that there are superior pleasures found in Christ, it sets you free. When you understand the superior pleasure of, commu of commu the superior pleasure of pleasing the Father, 
When you understand that that is a superior pleasure over the pleasure that sin promises, there's a superior pleasure, and that pleasure is found in in obedience, in obeying the Father. There's a superior pleasure that comes from pleasing the Father, from delighting in worship of Him, from honoring and obeying Him. That's why when He he writes in Romans 6, 17, he says, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but look, you have become obedient from the heart. There's new affections in line with obedience to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You're not just white knuckling it and holding it and trying and making yourself to do, but there's now a new idea. It's no longer based upon duty, but it's now based upon delight. You delight, you delight yourselves to obey the Father. It's a joy when you understand. See, the key is understanding who you are. It's understanding your identity and then understanding the responsibility that goes with who you are and what the responsibilities in your identity are. Uh, My friend, Tony Cecil, who was the campus pastor at the Lexington campus. And the Lexington campus always had a different flavor than the Frankfurt campus. Uh, The Lexington campus, the demographic that came was mostly like college age people. Uh, young, young singles and young married couples and young professionals was all in the, in the, in the crowd, in the mix. Very few young families. It was just very different. And one time Tony got invited to, uh, uh, one of the guys was, Hey, I'm going to have some guys over. We're going to build a bonfire. And so he invited Tony. He's like, Hey, I'm going to have some of the other guys over in the church. And this guy's name is Willis. And Willis says, Hey, Tony, we'd love to have you. It was a Friday night in the winter. And Tony says, You know what? I'd, I'd love to be there, but I can't. My daughter, is in the nutcracker dance and, I gotta, and, and I'm going to that. And this is what that guy said. Listen, he said, that's okay. Kids aren't invited anyway. Like he didn't understand Tony's role as a dad because this guy wasn't a dad. He didn't understand that, no, that's part of the job. <laughs> that's part of my duty. That's part of my responsibility is to go to the nutcracker with my, with my daughter. I mean, when he said, hey, that's okay. Kids aren't invited anywhere. He's like, Tony, don't, you, you know, don't worry about your kids. If they can't come, you can come anyway because the guy had never been, a, he never assumed the role of a dad. But for those of us in the room that get to call ourselves dads, we know that, hey, that's one of the duties going along of it is we go to those kinds of things to support our kids. But then here's the other deal. It's not out of duty that we do those things, but it's out of delight. I love to go and support my children and tell my children, hey, I'm proud of you. And for them to be on the stage and look out and know, hey, dad's out there and dad's got my back and dad's rooting for me, good or bad or all those things. And those in the, in the room who are dads, we understand that. And the same thing is true when the Bible teaches us about who we are in Christ and our role and teaches all these things. What it's doing is know who you are. Understand your identity in Christ. And from understanding that identity, that you're a son and you're a slave, which is important, you're a servant of Christ, you're all of those things so that you can live out of a place of not out of duty, but out of a place of delight. That as an adopted child in the family of God, it's my delight to get to please the Father by obeying Him. There is a pleasure that comes from that 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 sin never matches up to, that never gives. Superior pleasure of pleasing the Father, a superior pleasure of a joint, a superior pleasure of the communion with God. Sin doesn't break our union with Jesus, but it certainly disrupts our communion a superior pleasure of enjoying God's good design. The created things have a good design in them and we get to experience that good design when we're living for God in those things. In conclusion, 
Romans 6 is your truest self as a Christian. It's your truest self. This is your true identity. This is who you really are if you're a believer in Christ. Know these truths about you. That's why Paul says, do you not know? We know, we believe, we know. You must consider yourself that if you are a Christian, God created a union between you and Christ. And because of this union, you died with Christ when he died. You have been raised, raised to newness of life when you were raised and when Jesus was raised. And you are now free from the penalty and the power of sin in your fullest and truest identity. Because of this unbreakable union, because of this new true identity, you are justified and you most certainly are being sanctified, but you're not there yet. You're not glorified. You're not yet perfected. Therefore, confirm this great union by reckoning yourself to be what you truly and really are in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your, for your grace that saves us, your grace that sets us free, and your grace that sanctifies us. May we know who we are, our true selves to be, May we believe that in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And may that arm us to live out lives congruent to what you have declared about us, what you said you were gonna perform in us, what you're doing for us, as we've even read in Romans 6. May we live that in reality. And Jesus, when we sin, may we fall back on you who were perfect, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve. United us even to your resurrection and gave us newness of life. And we remember that. Even as we remember you and your work in what we're about to do in the taking of the Lord's Supper, may it be a reality of what you have accomplished for us and what you are accomplishing in us. To your glory and your glory alone, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.